If you were with us during our Bible class period this morning, uh, you know that Kyle Butt is with us uh, today. Uh, to, he taught class this morning and now he's going to speak to us um, this morning as well. Uh, he is from Columbia, Tennessee, uh, and, and he works at Apologetics Press, where he has worked since 2000. Um, and, and he is a fantastic communicator of God's Word um, and works uh, in the realm of communicating uh, and, and proving the existence of God. Kyle is a, is a blessing to so many. He's been a personal blessing to Amelia and me for, for a lot of years, and we are so thankful for him and excited that he's with us today. In October of this year, I debated a man down at Faulkner University. His name is Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer has the second longest single author column in Scientific American that anybody has written. It was an 18-year stint that he had. He's written, I think, about seven to eight New York Times bestsellers. He started the Skeptic magazine and then ultimately, I think, the Skeptic organization. He is one of probably the top three top four atheistic debaters and communicators in the nation and probably worldwide. Uh, Richard Dawkins might be above him, maybe Sam Harris, but he would be right there, top three. In the debate, at the end, we had a time when students could come up and ask questions. And they would say, okay, this question is for Kyle, or this question is for Dr. Shermer. This question came to Dr. Shermer. A student came up and said, was there a time or something in your life that caused you not to believe in God? And Dr. Shermer said, yes. He said, I think it was when my, my college girlfriend was in a car accident and it was so severe that she was paralyzed from the waist down. And I prayed and prayed that God would heal her and he did not. And from that time on, I just simply did not believe in God anymore. I don't know if something like that has happened to you or to someone in your life. But what I do know is that as we work with people who say that they don't believe in God anymore, the number one issue that arises is not the scientific evidence for evolution. We can refute that. It's not lots of the other information that seems so prevalent that needs to be addressed, but it's the one question. How can a loving God allow the suffering that I see in this world? And basically, unless you're able to answer that question, it doesn't matter what you do with all the other stuff. Because ultimately, that is the number one challenge for the existence of the God of the Bible that we encounter. And I think most of us in here would know that it's probably the one that has given us more pause than anything as it relates to knowing that God exists. So let's look into that. Let's explore this idea. It's not a new idea. The concept of the problem of pain and suffering goes back at least to 300 B.C. 
There's a man by the name of Epicurus, and Epicurus said something like this. There are three propositions that I don't see how all three of them can be true. That there is an all-loving God, that he is all-powerful, and that evil exists. He said, there could be an all-powerful God who doesn't love us, and that would make sense that evil would exist. Or there could be an all-loving God who isn't all-powerful and he can't stop the suffering that happens in our lives. But I don't see how an all-powerful, all-loving God can exist. That was in 300 B.C. And people who have challenged the belief in the God of the Bible have used that type of reasoning against the God of the Bible for hundreds and now yea, thousands of years. Maybe you'll recall a man by the name of C.S. Lewis who was an atheist for many years who struggled with this idea of the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. And he said, I just don't see how justice is being done in this world. It doesn't seem fair that small children will be abused by their parents. It doesn't seem right that in a war-torn nation there will be collateral damage and people that don't have anything to do with it will be maimed by bombs that were meant for other people. I don't think that that's just or fair. And then he started processing that idea. And he said, where had I gotten this idea of fairness? If there's no God, if this world is just a cosmic accident, if humans are just the effect of multiple chance happenings over millions and millions of years, and you're just another mammal on the chain, then that idea of justice, he said, doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, he said it makes no sense. If there's no God, then where had I gotten the idea of justice? He said, I had a couple options. I could say that there's no such thing as real justice. If there's no God and there's no ultimate standard, then really there would be no such thing as real justice. And so I could say that. But he said, I knew that some things really were just and right, and some things really were wrong and unjust. So I could say that it was just a private fancy of my own, but then if I did, I couldn't say that God was being unjust for allowing something to happen. And he said, this idea of justice kept plaguing me, and I thought to myself, how can you get justice? You can't call something crooked unless you know what a straight line is. He said, and ultimately it was the problem of pain and suffering that brought me to my conclusion that there is a God because atheism turns out to be too simple because atheism starts with justice, which you can't have if there's no God who's the standard for that. And subsequently, after C.S. Lewis, many of the philosophers admitted, okay, you can't use the problem of pain and suffering to disprove God's existence philosophically or logically. It's just not possible. The fact of the matter is, if there is anything that actually is evil, if there's anything that's actually unjust, there would have to be an ultimate standard of good. There would have to be an ultimate standard of justice. And so God would have to exist. The problem of evil, pain, and suffering logically actually turns out to be a piece of evidence for the existence of God. You could state it something like this. If there is no God, then there are no absolute moral 
value standards. Evil exists. Evil is an absolute moral value. Therefore, God exists. You could use it for a piece of evidence for the existence of God, logically speaking. But now let's, let's quit with that. Because, okay, whatever you could do logically or philosophically, all right. E- even the, the higher ups of the atheistic and evolutionary and philosophical community, okay, we can't logically or philosophically disprove the existence of God using pain and suffering. But hey, you know there's so much suffering and pain in this world. How can you believe that there's a loving God that lets that happen? And so they shift it to an emotional discussion. And then they do something like Bart Ehrman from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill did in our debate when he stood up and he just started listing all of the things that were going on in the world that every single day... 20,000 kids die because they don't have sufficient clean water to drink. That every day this number of murders happens and every day this number of people die of disease and every day this number of famines occur and every day. And he said, okay, you might not can logically prove that God doesn't exist based on these things, but what about all this? What about in the course of the introduction that I've just discussed? We have had hundreds of children die worldwide because they don't have clean water to drink. And now that starts to be a a challenge to us, doesn't it? It starts to be a challenge to us, I think, because we misunderstand the purpose of our life. You see, from an atheistic standpoint, from a physical, materialistic standpoint, there's one reason that you're here. The reason that you're here is to be as comfortable as possible, to live as long as possible, to pass on your genetic information to the greatest extent that you can. And I believe some of us, even as Christians, have maybe accidentally adopted the idea of the world that that what I'm supposed to be doing here is living a comfortable, happy, enjoyable life I'm supposed to get the things that I want, and if I don't get the things that I want, then there's a problem with how my life is going. And and we forget the purpose of this life. Many times I think we look at God kind of like God is 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 a pet owner. You know, we received a pet actually from here. It was a guinea pig. It was a I didn't know they lived as long as they did. This one was like 27 years old, as I understood it. Uh, my son, the, the Burnett's, gave us this guinea pig, and uh, uh, he lived way longer than I even thought he would with us. And my son, my youngest son, Reed, who's 15 years old now, he got that guinea pig, and his job was to take care of the guinea pig, and he loved it. And it came with all kinds of little outfits, and there's a little Santa outfit that he put on it and took pictures. Made sure the cage for the guinea pig was clean. That was one of his jobs and the stipulation of him getting a a pet guinea pig was to make sure that he fed the guinea pig, make sure he gave water to the guinea pig, make sure he had all the special stuff it was supposed to have. He would go buy those little yogurt treats and every now and then he would feed the guinea pig yogurt treats. And he was a very good pet owner. 
And, you know, sometimes I think we view God like that, like we're God's little pets and he's put us on this planet and we're all good with God as long as he does his part. And his part for us in our minds is that he basically gives us everything that we really feel like we want and need. He keeps our cage clean, gives us a nice house and makes sure we have cars that run and every now and then gives us enough money for a vacation. And as long as he does that stuff, we're good. But if there's something that comes into our life that doesn't mesh with what we thought our life was supposed to be like, then we feel like there's a problem with God's deal with us. And so what I'd like to ask you is, in a very serious way, why do you think you're here? Because if you miss your purpose, you'll never ever understand the problem of pain and suffering. Now, now let me stop here. Let me stop here and say, if, if you think I am going to be able to speak to the pain and suffering in your life, I'm not. I'm not. Many of you have suffered in half of your life more than I'll ever suffer in my whole existence. I have not had a life of suffering that is like many, many people that I know. And so I am not standing up here telling you I've got all the answers to the suffering in your life and I can tell you this from, that's not what I'm doing at all. I I wouldn't begin to know how to do that. But that aside, I do believe I've got a message that God inspired for us this morning that can help you reconcile any struggle you have with pain that's going on in your life with this idea. Recognizing why you are here. You see, because if you miss the purpose of something, then you're always going to misunderstand it. In my kitchen for years, we had a little wooden bowl, and in that little wooden bowl were three of the most beautiful green pears you have ever seen. If you came into my house and you picked up one of those pears and you bit into it, you would have a problem. The styrofoam uh, is not very tasty. And if you came to me and said, Kyle, these pears are no good, you can't eat them. You know, of course, my answer to that would be, (laughs) you're the first person who's tried. And guess what? They're not edible. They're not for consumption. They're for decoration. You see, if you miss the purpose of why that pear's sitting there, you're never going to understand what it's supposed to be doing. If you believe that your purpose in this life is to live a comfortable, well-fed, well-taken-care-of, happy life, you've misunderstood your purpose. And so have I. And you're always going to view suffering and pain as something that's getting in the way of how you're supposed to be living. It's always going to feel like it's disrupting something. What's the purpose of your life? I want you to turn in the Bible with me to Philippians chapter 1 verse 20. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 20, you're going to have a little context of Paul who is in jail. The soldiers have him there and he is telling the Philippians, actually this has really turned out for a really good thing. Uh, Lots of people are getting to hear the gospel because me being in jail, 
It looks like he thought, hey, me being in jail was a problem, but it's really not a problem. This is actually very exciting. The gospel is getting preached. But he says there in about verse 18, 19, he says, but I want you to pray for me. And here's what I want you to pray in verse 20 of Philippians chapter 1. That with all boldness, as always so now also, Christ may be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you hear what Paul is saying the purpose of his life is? That God, in the form of Jesus Christ, might be presented as bigger to the world through the body of Paul, whether that means he's going to die or live. The purpose of your life is to bring glory to God. Now it might be that in your case, that means you live to be 85 years old and you see your great-grandchildren grow to be teenagers and you impart to them as much godly wisdom as knowledge as you can possibly be and you had a very comfortable, financial, prosperous job your basically whole life. That might be it for you. You look at that and you think, wow, that'd be nice. But you know what? The Bible says that it's harder for a rich person to enter into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It'll be harder for you to do that than if you actually had lots of pain and suffering in your life. It might be, you know, it might be that you'd be like my friend who was a co-worker of mine. His name was Charles McCown. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor in... I think April of 2016. Here's what he wrote April of 2016. He said, the truth is some people are afraid of death. I'm not. I have a relationship with Christ and I hope to do more for him on this earth. But if he chooses to take me home, my thoughts will be with those I am leaving behind that they seek him even in the best of times because in the worst of times he will be easier to find. He wrote that in 2016 of April. He died in September. Just a few months after that. A very young man with young children who with some of his last words that he ever posted on Facebook said, look at Jesus. Question. Did he fulfill his purpose in life? What's your purpose? If your purpose is to bring glory to God, then suffering fits into a framework where our present condition is not all there is. And ultimately, we are going to receive a new, incorruptible body that will feel no pain, and our light affliction is but for a moment, and it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And it might mean that at 35, 
your life coming to an end will bring more glory to God than if you live to be 85. Now, I want to show you some things that in the Bible, they just don't, they don't fit with how we normally think about what's supposed to happen. I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 9. It's going to be the very first part of John chapter 9. Jesus and his apostles are going to come upon this guy who is blind. Just to give you a little context, it looks like he's been sitting in this one place begging for many, many years. Looks like everybody in the area knows who he is. In fact, later in the chapter, you're going to find that he is of age, ask him. And so he's probably in his 30s, maybe 40s. He is an adult who has been blind from the beginning of his life. He's never seen anything up to this point. And so the apostles, laboring under the wrong conclusion that suffering is always because somebody has done something wrong, they say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? You know, lots of times, if we misunderstand the purpose of life, when pain and suffering and evil comes into our life, we start looking around and saying, what's wrong? Who did something wrong? What have I done? Why is this happening? Why isn't it happening to somebody else who is much more evil or wicked or whatever than me? Because we're misunderstanding what's going on. The apostle said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus said, nobody sinned. But now look at why this man is blind. Verse 3. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. Does that seem fair to you? That this man has been blind for his whole life for the reason that the works of God might be revealed in him? Are, are you comfortable with that? It's tough, isn't it? Especially if we misunderstand what we're doing here. Well, Paul had a great understanding, and Paul was saying, if, if I die, if I'm blind for 40 years, if I'm crucified like Jesus, what, whatever happens, as long as God is glorified in my body, I'm in. That's hard to get to, isn't it? You know, I had a, a friend at Freed Hardman. Uh, he was nerve-wracking because in Greek classes, now I wasn't good at Greek, and... I uh, had to do it for lots of the work that I did. But this guy loved Greek and was great at it. And he sat back on the back row. And if Dow Flat, our professor, would ever ask a question, this guy was the first one who would say, well, that's a postperative active indicative of the third person of the irregular verb of blah, 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 blah. And me and all the other normal guys were sitting there like, what's this guy doing? I mean, it's like every time. And, and he wasn't trying to flex on us. Uh, really, like lots of times he would wait for somebody else to answer. And nobody else would. And so this guy always would. Knew, knew every, every Greek tense, every word. Made like 103 on every test. We always had bonuses. Which were funny because they were bonuses about Dow Flat's life. It's like, what city was Dow Flat? Did he, was he born in? Stuff like that. But anyway. This guy just made hundreds on everything. David. Blind. Couldn't see anything. Hadn't, 
been able to. David was in high school on a senior walk at camp. And they were going around the fire saying things that they were thankful for. And as a senior in high school, David, they get to him and they, you know, a lot of them say, well, I'm thankful for my parents, thankful for my friends, thankful for this camp, stuff like that. You know, they, they get to David. Who, you know, high school kids are probably looking at this blind 17, 18-year-old, never played any sports, never been able to do all the other stuff that all the high school kids do. Wondering what he's going to say. And they were probably very shocked when he said, I'm thankful that I am blind because I see things that other people do not. I heard that story told about David. I wasn't there, so I called him up. I said, David, I'm not sure I believe this. I'm not sure I believe that you said as a senior that you're thankful that you were blind. He said, well, yeah, let me tell you. He said, if I could not be, I would choose not to be. I wish I wasn't. He said, but because of my blindness, I have gotten to do things, see things, and know things that other people will never get to know or see or do. And I am very thankful for it. The guy's been blind for 30, 40 years. Why has he been blind? So that the works of God might be seen in him. Now turn to the end of John. Just thought about this the other day, just ran across this the other day. It's in a section of Scripture, it's the very last chapter. It's in a section of Scripture that you're not really thinking about the last part of it. At least I haven't been for years and years. It's Peter and Jesus interacting and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you. And then the second time he says, do you love me? And he says, Lord, I know, you know I love you. The third time he says, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus makes this kind of cryptic statement. He says, when you were a kid, you walked where you wanted to. But when you are older, people are going to tie you up and drag you where you don't want to go. You remember that? Statement there in, in John. Okay, but then notice what he says in verse 19. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. Hmm. Oh, Jesus said Peter was going to get drug around and killed to tell him that his last Action in the world was going to bring glory to God. What are you doing here? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 5. And in Hebrews chapter 5, I believe that there's no possible way you can ever answer or address the question of pain and suffering without coming to the real answer. And the real answer, all, all the other stuff is academic. 
And what I mean is you can say, well, you know, sometimes evil, pain, and suffering, it uh, helps us and builds our character. Sometimes evil, pain, and suffering is a consequence of something that we've done wrong because we live in a world where there are natural laws. Sometimes evil, pain, and suffering is something. We, we can go through all the academic stuff. But you'll never assess pain and suffering correctly until you come to the Bible's answer for it. And it's a person. Jesus Christ is the answer to pain and suffering. In fact, I'm convinced that that's why Christianity spread so quickly and grew so widely is because Christianity is the only thing that gives any meaning to suffering. Without Christianity and the life and actions and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, suffering cannot bring real value. Now, let's read verse 7 of chapter 5. Talking about Jesus, the text says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. Now I want you to stop right there. And you've got an individual, Jesus Christ, who was born in a very small area of the world, Bethlehem, and then lived in Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He's 30 years old. By all worldly accounts, he is a failure in a lot of ways. He doesn't have any money, so much so that the only thing he owns at the end of his life are the clothes that are on his back, and the soldiers take those and cast lots for him. Jesus, from every perspective of the people who knew him, though, had never done anything wrong, never one time. Peter said he was like a lamb without spot and blameless. Nobody could testify to a single thing he had ever done wrong. He had never, never harmed any person. He had only tried to help. He had fed people that were hungry. He had cast out demons. He had helped people who were sick. He had literally raised people from the dead. Pilate recognized he was innocent and tried to let him go. The only innocent man to ever live a full life. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Bible says that he is screaming and crying out to God. I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I always, as a kid, thought about him kind of like a Sunday morning prayer. You know how we, we bow our heads, and it's real quiet, and... The person prays. I always thought Jesus kneeling down beside a rock or something and he's bowing his head and probably even if it's audible, you can't hear it. That's not the picture. In fact, in Mark chapter 14, it talks about he, how he was troubled and greatly distressed and that he went through the garden and the Bible says fell on the ground. But if I understand that right, it's a present active where it means he kept falling. Like he would get up and go a little further and fall down again and get up and go a little further and fall down again. And he's screaming with vehement cries and tears. Have you ever been to a funeral where the people wail? They scream and cry? That's what Jesus is doing in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Gethsemane, rather. 
That's why it's so interesting that his apostles, who are only a stone's throw away, are sleeping through it. Well, it gets exciting here in this verse because he's screaming and he's crying out to God with vehement cries and tears to God who was able to save him from death. Okay, all right. Now we get the evil, pain, and suffering issue. God is all-powerful. Okay, there's a God who sees suffering. His son, the only innocent person ever to live, is screaming and wailing and crying, let this not happen to me. And God can stop it. But that's the point of Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 when it says that Jesus cried to God, who was able to stop it? Oh, and then it gets exciting. Then it gets real exciting in the next line. And he was heard for his godly fear. All right. We've got it. When a faithful servant of God who doesn't deserve to be punished screams to a God who can stop it and is heard, what happens? They get better. Their child gets better. Their business situation changes. God steps in and, and takes care of... No, no, that's not, that's not what happens here. The only innocent being ever to walk the planet in adult human form screams to a God who he knows can stop it and he knows God hears him. And he dies anyway. There you go. That's Christianity for you. That's the message. God could stop it and he didn't. And if it stopped right there, from a materialistic standpoint... What did Paul say? We of all men would be the most pitiable, pitiful. If that's all you got, then you guys are crazy. But it's not all we've got, is it? Oh, you got to get to the next verse. Now it really does get exciting. I mean, after the God who could have stopped it doesn't stop it. The next verse explains to us, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. Verse 9, and... Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who believe him, to all who obey him. Okay, God can stop it. He doesn't. The death of Jesus glorifies God to the nth degree. Jesus is buried for three days and he comes back from that tomb to give the answer to pain and suffering to the world. And the answer is... Pain and suffering is temporary. Eternal salvation is forever. And it will all be worth it. That's why when Tacitus says that the Christians were being murdered and killed and abused, Justin Martyr can say, they can kill us, but they can't harm us.
What do you think about a group of people that so process this physical life that when they come down with a terminal disease and it's going to cut their life short by 50 years. They are looking at the doctor who is assessing this disease and they're saying, hey, I know that I'm going to heaven to you because I'm not scared to die and I hope you're not either. And the reason I'm not scared to die is because Jesus Christ is my Savior. You think that makes a difference to that doctor who deals with patients who are hanging on to every single thread of life they can possibly hang on to because they are scared to death to die because they do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, here's the real question to us this morning. The, the problem of evil, pain, and suffering, it's not going to be answered insofar as... I, I don't know how to process the suffering you're going through other than that Jesus Christ has felt it more than anyone and Jesus trusted his life to God and he knew it would turn out right in the end. But here's what I do know. Are you living so that you're bringing glory to God? That's the real point. I mean, and it might be that it's through suffering. It might be that it's through prosperity. It might be that it's through a great job. It might be that it's through you getting fired three times. It might be that you have kids. It might be that you're never blessed with kids. It might be that you are blessed with this and blessed with that. It, it, who knows what it is in your life? But the question is, are you assessing your physical life on this planet with the intent to whatever you do, whatever happens to you, whatever you say to another person about any situation in your life, to show them the awesome God you serve. Because then and only then will any suffering have any meaning. Are you allowing the suffering in your life to draw you closer to a creator that you can make bigger in the lives of others or are you wasting the suffering God gives you? The question is, are you bringing glory to God? You know, there's always, a, always an invitation. At the end of every sermon, probably from this pulpit, there's an invitation. Everybody closes their Bible. You get ready to sing the song. You start thinking about what's going to happen after services. Where you're going to eat lunch. What you're going to go do. But listen to me. If you are not a Christian. You know that verse there in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. Where it says he prayed to God and God heard him and God could stop it. And he didn't. The promise of eternal life and things being better is only given to people who obey Christ. And when the text says in Romans that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord 
for those who are the called according to his purpose. That means suffering has meaning in every life that assesses it properly and uses it to turn them to God. But people who don't, it's wasted and their suffering will never have any value. And if you're not a Christian today, there's no way you can be bringing glory to God. And there's no way you can be using any suffering in your life to add value. So the question is, if you are not a Christian, what are you going to do with the purpose of your life and the suffering you experience? If you need to become a Christian, I hope you will as we stand and as we sing.